Good evening. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, and this is the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Each week I'll be playing stripped-down, deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, highlighting different instruments and vocals in a way that will truly amaze you. Imagine sitting in the control room at EMI Studios and having the opportunity to peel away the layers of a song, discovering new elements that you never knew existed. This is the closest you can get to that experience. So sit back, tune in, and enjoy the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'll make you maybe next time around. Tonight we're going to continue our exploration of Paul McCartney, the bass player, with songs from 1966 and 1967 a period where his development as a player and the sound of his bass on record reached new levels figuratively and literally. During the Rubber Soul sessions, McCartney began using his Rickenbacker 4001 bass more and more, and his Hofner was used primarily for live performances. For the three albums and related singles released in 66 and 67, he used the Rickenbacker exclusively, and although it was a backup bass for the 66 tours, he never used it live, preferring the lightweight Hofner. Although tonight's show will primarily feature McCartney's bass playing from 66 and 67, we're going to open the show with the Beatles' first love anthem, which predated the Summer of Love and All You Need Is Love by nearly two years, 1965's The Word. Rubber Soul was the first album where McCartney would often overdub his bass part after the backing tracks were recorded, and The Word was one of these instances. The rhythm track consisted of Starr on drums, Lennon on rhythm guitar, Harrison on lead guitar, and McCartney on piano. This gave him the freedom to lay down one of his funkiest bass parts to date. All of the things he had been hinting at in 63 and 64 are in full effect on the track, and its prominence in the mix, coupled with the sound of the Rickenbacker, demonstrates his love of American soul music. Look out for my favorite lick, heard in the third chorus.
On April 13, 1966, the Beatles were in EMI Studio 2 for the fifth session for the Revolver LP. They'd begun work on Tomorrow Never Knows and Got to Get You Into My Life the week before, and had also worked on Harrison's Love You Too a couple of days earlier and during the afternoon session on the 13th. But the evening session was dedicated to a song that would not end up on the album, the A-side of the band's 11th single, Paperback Writer. The basic track consisted of Starr on drums, Lennon on rhythm guitar, McCartney on lead guitar, and Harrison on a barely audible bass guitar guide track played on a Burns new sonic bass. During the Rubber Soul sessions, McCartney overdubbed bass after the basic tracks were recorded on Michelle, The Word, and other tracks, but it wasn't commonplace until Revolver. Engineer Jeff Emmerich recalled the session. Even before he got down to the brass tacks of teaching the others their parts, Paul turned to me. Jeff, I need you to put your thinking cap on. This song is really calling out for that deep Motown bass sound we've been talking about, so I want you to pull out all the stops this time. All right, then? I nodded an affirmative. Paul had long been complaining that the bass on Beatles records weren't as loud or as full as the bass on the American records he so loved. He and I would often get together in the mastering room to listen intently to the low end of some new import he had gotten from the States, most often a Motown track. Even though we had DI boxes available, I rarely used them to record Paul's bass. Instead, I followed the standard EMI directive of placing a microphone in front of his bass amplifier. The bass sounds we were getting were decent, partly because Paul had switched from his signature Hofner violin Beatle bass to a beefier Rickenbacker, but still not as good as what we were hearing on those American records. Fortunately, as Paul and John turned to George Harrison and began showing him the chords to Paperback Writer, inspiration struck. It occurred to me that since microphones are in fact simply loudspeakers wired in reverse, why not try using a loudspeaker as a microphone? Logically, it seemed that whatever can push bass signal out can also take it in and that large loudspeaker should be able to respond to low frequencies better than a small microphone. The more I thought about it, the more it made sense. The next day they experimented with this technique, and the heavy bass sound they were after was achieved. That day they also recorded the B-side Rain, which used another recording technique which affected the way the rhythm section sounded on record. They recorded the basic tracks, which included McCartney's bass, at a fast tempo, and then slowed it down for playback, creating a slower groove and a depth of sound that was huge. His playing on both Paperback Writer and Rain is sublime. The latter is especially striking and is one of his busiest bass lines filled with syncopated 16th notes punctuating its funky feel. His melodicism is at an all-time high, and his playing is acrobatic yet sounds effortless and truly elevates the production of both songs. One, two, three, Yeah. Mm-hmm.
Show, we spoke about how McCartney's bass lines on both Lennon's and Harrison's songs could sometimes be more remarkable than the ones heard on his own compositions due to the fact that he would often approach them solely as a bass player, not as a composer and singer. The next two songs from Revolver are perfect examples of this. Not only does McCartney lay down stellar bass parts, but he also handles lead guitar duties on both, demonstrating his strength as a superb multi-instrumentalist. And Your Bird Can Sing and Taxman had both been recorded during a 12-hour session, nine and a half of which was spent on Anya Bird Can Sing, on April 20th, but neither was deemed suitable for release. The original take of Lennon's composition had a Bird's-influenced arrangement featuring Harrison's 12-string Rickenbacker, the last time the guitar would be used on a Beatles record. The next day, they reconvened in the studio to take another shot at Taxman, spending 10 hours on the Harrison composition. McCartney laid the bass live along with Starr on drums and Harrison on rhythm guitar. The bass line is stunning, and has been imitated on countless songs including the Jam's hit single Start. It's not only reminiscent of Motown bassist James Jamerson's style, 
but also had some interesting 16th note riffs on the verse before the stinging guitar solo, which McCartney also plays. He was definitely taking a Motown feel, but putting his own spin on it. As for And Your Bird Can Sing, the band returned to it six days after it was originally recorded during a 12-hour session, which saw them record a new version from scratch. Not only does McCartney play the harmonized lead guitar with Harrison, but he lays down a funky, bubbling bass line that grooves from the first note to the last.
When the Beatles reconvened in Studio 2 on November 24, 1966, it had been nearly five months since they had been in the studio, and one thing was clear, they would not be touring anymore. They hadn't played any songs from Revolver Live, choosing only Paperback Writer from their 66 recorded repertoire, and only played two songs live from Rubber Soul, Nowhere Man and If I Needed Someone, as well as Day Tripper, the album's accompanying single. It was clear by the winter of 66 that the studio was their home, and that there was no need to worry about recreating their performances live. This was their intention when they began work on the Lennon masterpiece, Strawberry Feels Forever. At this stage, there was no Mellotron intro, the song began with the verse rather than the chorus, and it featured electric guitar strummed in a similar fashion to many of their early demos, along with drums, slide guitar, three-part backing vocals, and Mellotron. But for this take, the Mellotron played by McCartney is on the brass setting, rather than the flute setting heard on the final version. Four days later, the group recorded a second version of the song with the Mellotron flute intro played by McCartney, as well as finger-picked guitar, rather than the strum part heard on take one. The song was also transposed down a minor third, and Ringo's drum part changed significantly. McCartney overdubbed his melodic bass line and Lennon his vocals. The next day, they decided to give it another try, and by take six, they had found the perfect groove and the song was ready for new overdubs. But this still would not be the final version released in 67. Nine days after this version was recorded, the group decided to try it again. This time it would be scored for trumpets and strings by George Martin. And after much deliberation, Lennon decided that he liked the first half of the third version and the second half of the fourth version, and asked Martin to join the two, although they were in different keys and played at different tempos. George Martin and engineer Jeff Emmerich were up for the task and realized that if they sped up the remix of the second version and slowed down the remix of the third version, the two could be spliced together. The memorable Mellotron intro played by McCartney sets the stage perfectly and has become one of the most iconic keyboard parts in rock music. McCartney's answer to Strawberry Fields was Penny Lane, begun on December 29, 1966, and the two would be released as the Beatles' first single of 67. Jeff Emmerich elaborated on the recording of this McCartney classic. Unlike any other Beatles track recorded to that point, it started with Paul playing piano, not with the four of them playing a rhythm track together. Every single part except the main piano piece was an overdub. For days, the others sat at the back of the studio watching Paul layer keyboard after keyboard, working completely on his own. As always, his sense of timing was absolutely superb. The main piano part that everything was built on was rock solid, despite the fact that there were no electronic metronomes to lay down click tracks in those days. In fact, Ringo wasn't even employed to tap out a beat on the hi-hat. It was this bedrock of Paul's original piano track that gave the whole song such a great feel. Numerous piano, vocal, and percussion overdubs were done before McCartney ever laid down a bass part, which he didn't do until the fifth session dedicated to the song on January 6, 1967. The walking bass line of the verse works perfectly against the piano stabs, and it's cool the way McCartney's bass line actually changes the way the chords work on the pre-chorus. The melodic movement during the chorus changes the feel at the ideal moment, swinging it a bit more. Enjoy these bass-heavy mixes of the Beatles' 1967 single. I'm going to Strawberry fields Nothing is real And nothing to get hung about Strawberry fields forever Living 
follows Misunderstanding all you see It's getting hard to be someone But it all works out It doesn't matter much to me Let me take you down Cause I'm going to Strawberry fields Nothing is real And nothing to get hung about Strawberry fields forever No one I think is in my tree I mean it must be high or low That is you can't, you know, tune in but it's alright That is I think it's not too bad Let me take you down Cause I'm going to Strawberry fields Nothing is real And nothing to get hung about Strawberry fields forever Always know, sometimes think it's me But you know I know and it's a dream I think I know, I mean, uh, yes, but it's all wrong That is, I think I disagree Let me take you down Cause I'm going to Strawberry fields Nothing is real Nothing to get hung about Strawberry fields forever Strawberry fields forever Strawberry fields forever
The Sgt. Pepper LP has some fantastic bass playing on it, and one of the highlights is the closing song, A Day in the Life. The basic tracks recorded on January 19, 1967, consisted of Lennon on acoustic guitar, McCartney on piano, Harrison on maracas, and Starr on bongos. His overdub bass part was well thought out, and although it's root-based, he continuously changes the rhythm of the notes. He initially comes in with a chordal part that follows the piano before playing a 16th note riff leading into the verse. He starts out with an eighth note pattern for the first two bars before slowing down the rhythm to quarter notes in measure three. Throughout the verse, he continues to switch between eighth notes and quarter notes, along with syncopated licks that lead us through the changes. His part during the B section is particularly interesting, switching between a single note part and a walking bass line with a few hammer-ons thrown in for good measure. Look out for his rhythmic mistake playing a little early, 28 seconds into the song. Two, three, four.
Lovely Rita is an often neglected track, yet it has one of the coolest bass parts on the album, mixing walking patterns and arpeggios to connect the chords in a seamless manner. The way he slides around the fretboard is slinky, and along with Starr's rock-steady drumming, lays the foundation for a truly stellar track. One of the best parts is the outro. It almost sounds like a dub track that you'd hear in a club today. We'll follow with a Lennon composition that benefits greatly from a magnificent McCartney bass line, as well as another iconic keyboard part played on a Lowry organ that is as important to this song as the Mellotron was to Strawberry Fields. For Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, he alternates between a held part during the verses to a more fluid, busier part for the B section, before settling into a walking bass line on the chorus doubled by Harrison on Leslie's lead guitar. Of particular note are the fills he plays on the outro, an alteration that adds to the already fierce groove. We'll then play our final track from Pepper, McCartney's Getting Better. The verse begins with a bass line that jumps between octaves with sliding notes before moving to a walking line that seems to outline the wrong chords on the first chorus. In subsequent choruses, McCartney opts for a melodic phrase that descends through the chords, affecting how the chords are perceived by the listener. This contrapuntal bass line is a perfect example of how McCartney the bass player could align with McCartney the composer and create a part that treats the harmony in an innovative way.
we're going to close the show with one of my favorite Lennon songs with one of McCartney's coolest entrances, I Am the Walrus. They began work on the song on September 5th, 1967, the first song recorded after manager Brian Epstein's death nine days earlier. The backing track consisted of Lennon on Honer Pianet, Harrison on electric guitar, Starr on drums, and McCartney on tambourine. McCartney had originally played bass on the first few takes, but switched to tambourine when the group seemed unable to keep the song at a steady tempo. The bass part overdubbed the next day as a blend of quarter notes and eighth notes, and although it's a relatively simple part for the majority of the song, it has a swagger that's full of attitude and grooves perfectly with Starr's hip-hop-like beat.
Well, that's it for this time, Beatles fans. I hope you enjoyed part two of Paul McCartney, Bass Player. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, Volume 1, 1962-1963, and the Steely Dan FAQ, all that's left to know about this elusive band. Tune in to hear more deconstructed mixes of classic Beatle cuts, live tracks, solo recordings, and much, much more. You can also pick up a copy of my new CD, The Steely Dan Sessions, Interpretations of Unrealized Classics, at CD Baby, at anthonyrobustelli.com, on iTunes, or stream on Spotify or any of your favorite providers. You can stream past shows on iTunes, Podbean, or at the website, thebeatlesiwanttotellyou.com, and follow me on Instagram and Twitter, ShadyBearBKLYN. You can also like the Facebook pages for I Want to Tell You and the Steely Dan FAQ. See you next time. You 